I'm Lauren. I'm Catherine. And I'm Danielle. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, where we're unraveling the interconnected systems and paradigms that are holding us back from a just and sustainable apparel and home industry. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Danielle. Hey, girl. Hey. So recently, the fashion industry has focused on transparency and traceability as a tool for ensuring social progress in supply chains. The past several decades, the industry has focused on social compliance as a mechanism for improving labor conditions. Unfortunately, the social compliance system is plagued with dysfunctions, such as the notorious example of multiple similar audits requiring different locations for fire extinguishers, placements, and facilities. The current system, with a multitude of standards and assessments, has led to dramatic audit fatigue, an exorbitant amount of facilities' resources, time, and money being exhausted by multiple audits from different clients throughout the year, and has failed to fully address the root causes of dysfunctions that persist. Responsible purchasing practices are a new foundation for the industry, but we'll talk about how we still need to shift our lens to the entire value chain to address transparency. We'll get into it right after the break. So let's start at the beginning of transparency. Uh, When did the movement start? Well, about five years ago, there was a ton of movement around brands that were coming onto the scene as startups and claiming radical transparency. And a lot of us, of course, know Everlane was one of the first companies to do this. Uh, Radical transparency was one of the pillars of their brand that they really built everything around. And it was you know, being able to show the purchaser how much money it went to the seamstress, how much money went to flying the item to them, how much money went to each stage of the supply chain. And it was the first time that the mass consumer started to think about all of the steps in a supply chain to get to them and all of the hands that had to touch it. And then we started talking about subcontracting in the industry. And subcontracting started to become a real concern as so many people became more aware that, you know, a brand like Patagonia didn't just contract one facility to make their product. There might be many hands outside the four factory walls that touched a garment by the time it reached the customer in a store. And so all of these organizations started proliferating that were starting to uh, monitor and engage with brands on the transparency of their supply chain. Global Fashion Agenda started posting their report. There was a transparency pledge from Clean Clothes campaign uh, in about 2015 that had brands put out how many workers were at their facilities, where their facilities were located. It was the very first time that brands were being asked to disclose who was making their product, which before in the industry was considered completely proprietary information that you wouldn't share with a competitor because they could go steal your supplier. Right. And part of the catalyst for that was the Rana Plaza collapse, which, you know, after the catastrophe happened, we had brands whose labels were being found in the rubble who didn't even realize their Mm -hmm. products had been subcontracted to factories that were operating within the Rana Plaza. Absolutely. And so that was in 2013, where over a thousand garment workers were killed and about 2,000 were injured. 
And there were a number of factory fires that were in also in Bangladesh and other garment districts, you know, through the mid 2000s that were devastating and just caused a lot of energy put toward refocusing on the social compliance industry and where we were today in the industry. Yeah, so the collapse of the Rana Plaza and some of the the catastrophes that you hinted at, Catherine, were really really a catalyst in the industry. One of the big initiatives we obviously saw come out of Rana Plaza was Fashion Revolution and their Transparency Index. But the United Nations also has made a huge effort toward transparency since then. And Danielle, I know you've had experience with their efforts. Could you tell us more about them? So yeah, it's the Economic Commission for Europe, so the UNECE, that has identified transparency and traceability as key priorities. So this is in line with the United Nations 2030 agenda, and they are supporting industry efforts to effectively identify, prevent, and mitigate actual and potential negative impacts related to human rights violations, adverse uh, environmental effects, and human health hazards. So it's a multi-stakeholder initiative where they are, um, they've just released their call to action. So all actors that operate within um, apparel and footwear supply chains, they've called, um, released a call to action for them to participate in this initiative. And blockchain technology is actually going to be the backbone of this. So they are working with a technology provider who can help them run a pilot and also create policy recommendations for the industry moving forward. And they also view this as a a means to accelerate sustainability and circularity in in the value chain. Hmm. That's really interesting. I mean, obviously, there's a huge tech component to the traceability and transparency movement with blockchain, at least the conversations around blockchain really proliferating over the last few years. Could you tell us more a little bit about what the, the possibilities are for blockchain in our industry? Sure. Yeah. I mean, blockchain is a huge topic right now. I feel like everyone is kind of creating their own version of a blockchain, but it's essentially a distributed ledger system that can trace transactions. So the minute that you post something on a blockchain, any sort of information, it can't be tampered with or changed. And so that is the kind of aspect of it that is interesting for the concept or for the, to really advance traceability and transparency. And so it's basically a digital chain of custody that can't be tampered with. So everyone will actually have access to this distributed ledger system, which is another another feature of it that makes it more trustworthy. All of this technology, I think, as it is applied to the apparel and home goods industry, I think is in the development phase. So we have yet to really see kind of how it will play out. And I foresee there being maybe some issues with the fact that we're going to be having all of these blockchains that are operating in parallel and how are we going to make these blockchains talk to each other? I'm not sure about that technicality. Yeah, I mean, blockchain is a fascinating technology and a really interesting way to collect data. It also is just like the method by which we're gathering the data. There are different ways that we can apply it. Kat, what are some of the interesting ways that you've seen data applied to supply chain traceability transparency? Well, Marks and Spencer started actually mapping their supply chain, and it was the first large brand I ever saw doing this, and it was just really revolutionary for the industry, honestly. 
we talked about, you know, posting on your website where your locations were, but theirs was this interactive map where you could actually hone in on different places that their supply chain laid all over the world. A lot like Patagonia when they did the Footprint Chronicles. And then uh, one of the next really exciting things that happened in the industry was the start of SourceMap, a really, really cool platform that I mean, really chases down your entire supply chain for you. It sends an invitation to each of your tier one, tier two, tier three, all the way to your raw materials suppliers to join the source map platform with you and be able to enter data. I mean, I think it's a it's a really amazing platform that kind of creates this social network amongst all of their suppliers and sub-suppliers and into a, a global interactive network. And so it, it was just the beginning of, you know, both showing that transparency to your customers, but someone that was willing to help you facilitate that, even if, you know, maybe you didn't know internally as a brand professional where your supply chain all mapped out across all of your different divisions. So it was this way of consolidating all of that information, getting it kind of packaged up and ready to speak to the customer about it. Hmm, interesting. So what do you both see transparency doing for the industry, for the social compliance movement? Well, I think both transparency and traceability can help companies uh, make more risk-informed decisions and achieve accountability for their sustainability claims. So it is visibility into their supply chains. And I think the same goes, you know, we always say if you can't measure something, you don't know what you're going to be improving. And I think the same goes for work in your supply chain. You, if you don't know what's happening in your supply chain, how can you make it better? This is really the, what is the impetus for transparency and traceability. But we are still seeing that despite all of these initiatives, uh, such as the Fashion Revolution Transparency Index, it's an analysis of uh, 250 brands, some of the, the world's largest brands and retailers in the industry. And they're still finding that there is a major lack of, of transparency and that brands continue to publish more about their policies than on information about how they implement it. So it's, you know, we could call it greenwashing or them just talking about all of these, their kind of intentions, but actually how are they realizing these goals that they've set out for themselves? So before transparency and all of the technological advances and all the ways to map our supply chains and all of the ways to talk to our customers about transparency in our supply chains, there was social compliance. Lauren, how did the social compliance industry come about? Similar to Rana Plaza opening eyes to the lack of visibility into supply chains, there were labor scandals in the 1990s. Think the Nike child labor scandal or the Kathy Lee Gifford child labor scandal in their supply chains. Those events really highlighted the human rights abuses rampant in supply chains. And obviously before that, just like we see in a lot of things, like the, the innovation to address the issue was happening a little bit sooner. Social Accountability International created the SA 8000 in the late 80s, which was before these events. But these events really catalyzed a movement towards social compliance in the industry um, and really looking at what are the human rights conditions at the factory level in brand supply chains. So, you know, this industry, the social, social compliance industry has been around now for a little over three decades, which is quite a bit of time. And a whole industry has sprouted out from the movement. We have auditing firms who support the certification assessment process of social compliance in, in supply chains. Um, and something that we 
have realized over maybe the last decade that there's there's been more movement toward is that you know while these assessments are good they've been important in terms of understanding what's happening at the factory level and how do we mitigate the harms that are being done there have been a proliferation of assessments as well so you see factories undergoing a very similar auditor assessment for different organizations multiple times a year which is costly and time consuming so now we have this new dynamic of audit fatigue in the industry, which uh, efforts like the Social and Labor Convergence Project are really trying to address by building a universal agnostic assessment tool that can really be dropped in to a variety of certifications. So it's been interesting to see this evolution of social compliance in the industry and slowly trying to move toward better working conditions in our supply chains. Traceability and visibility is a part of understanding what's happening but it's really just a part of this bigger system and we're not really seeing the level of progress that we've wanted to see over the last three decades based on the efforts to date. I think we do know that audit fatigue is a real thing. It's become, social compliance has become more administrative and paperwork than than it has actual, really following through and seeing real improvements for garment workers in the industry. Um, And I love, I was reading a fig leaf for a fashion. It was a clean clothes campaign report that came out last year, 2019. And they really found that all of these initiatives on the part of brands and, um, you know, auditing and all of these uh, social compliance initiatives are really doing little to safeguard garment workers and are more prioritizing brands, their reputation and their profits in the end. Yeah, sadly, I read that report too, and it was an incredible report. It showed that, you know, on September 2012, only three weeks after Rena, the factory that uh, Rena was certified by the SAI, SA8000, the Ali Enterprises factory burned down in Pakistan, killing at least 250 workers. And it just shows certifications are falling short of protecting garment workers. Yeah, it's a really important consideration. I don't believe that it's out of a lack of desire for progress. There are external pressures from a business model standpoint on top of systems pressures that maintain the dynamics that already exist that are leading to human rights abuses. And I think collectively, the industry is frustrated and saddened by the fact that despite having social compliance for the last three decades, despite having transparency and visibility over the last 10 or so years, we're still seeing the same types of catastrophes happen despite all of this movement. So responsible purchasing practices are really looking at some key questions in areas where brands have had a lot of control over dictating the terms of their supply chain relationships. So these questions are things like, when will your supplier be paid for the goods they're producing for you? What will that price be? What are the parameters um, you'll negotiate that price on? What are the cancellation grounds, which we talked a little bit about during our first episode about the pandemic? You know, how, when are you canceling orders? And how are contracts regulated between the brand and the supplier. And these questions historically have really been answered and dictated by brands and responsible purchasing practices are requiring brands to have more of a collaborative approach with their supply chain partners and answering these questions to ensure that the lead times, the prices, the contracts are setting factories up for success and abiding by the regulations of the social compliance industry. 
Lauren, do you think that this means that brands are starting to take accountability for where the social compliance industry has fallen short? Yes and no. I think that the concept of responsible purchasing practices is introducing more accountability. There are certain areas where brands are being held to those standards a little bit more, like with um, the Fair Labor Association's accreditation process. They do specifically look at responsible purchasing practices, which is one of their principles for fair labor and uh, responsible purchasing. I mean, it's really more in terms of being able to say you're accredited with the Fair Labor Association, which isn't necessarily a desire to greenwash or say you're doing better than you are. There are a lot of really progressive brands who are part of the Fair Labor Association. So it's great to see an organization like them hold brands accountable to responsible purchasing practices. But there are other areas where it seems to be more of a voluntary practice. The Ethical Trading Initiative, which is a really great organization, they have their guide to buying responsibly and then also provide a lot of trainings and workshops around responsible purchasing for brands. But those are voluntary um, and there isn't necessarily an assessment or audit that happens around responsible purchasing practices. Similarly with ACT, which is Action Collaboration Transformation, an organization that started, I think, in the last five years. They require commitments to their five responsible purchasing practices, and they have a self-assessment that brands undergo, but it doesn't seem to be audited or reviewed with the same scrutiny that social compliance standards are at the factory level. So there's definitely a bit of a an imbalance in terms of the critical lens that we take with responsible purchasing practices as it relates to brands compared to social and labor assessments at the factory level. You know, one of the other initiatives that is going on is the Better Buying Initiative, which is tracking purchasing practices, performance, and apparel, footwear, and home textiles. And they gather anonymous supplier ratings of buyer purchasing practices obtained by independent third-party initiatives. And that's a really interesting effort that's that's being taken, but there aren't that many brands that are participating. So you also just don't see the pol- proliferation of responsible purchasing or the commitment to responsible purchasing that we're seeing on the other side. So there's a huge opportunity. I don't necessarily think that the, the industry is taking that opportunity. Yeah, I think it's great to point out there are a number of, of voluntary initiatives that are happening. And I would say I'm happy to see that there are more and more brands that are participating in these voluntary initiatives. I also want to point out, though, that there is some legislation that's happening. We have the Modern Slavery Act in the UK, which requires any uh, brand or retailer that sells, and I believe this is for all goods, it's not just for clothing or housewares items, but that everyone who sells goods within the UK has to guarantee that there is no slavery happening within their supply chains. Uh, Same goes for California legislation. I'm not sure the name of the actual legislation, but there is a uh, yeah, it's the um, California Transparency and Supply Chains Act. Perfect. Yeah. And so that's happening in California. Same sort of kind of scope and requirements for the law. I think it's important to point out we don't really I'm not really sure on how they are following through in ensuring that what brands are claiming or retailers are claiming is is actually the truth. But yeah, I, I think we do see a kind of major shift in general, even on the part of, of government. This, I mean, this is such an important development that it's becoming legislated because there's still up to $130 billion worth of products were at risk of modern slavery production for the G20 country imports as of a couple years ago. 
I just also want to point out, I was reading an article the other day, how consumers assume that slavery is happening abroad, that it's happening in places like Bangladesh. And they uh, don't actually realize that even in places like the garment district in LA is at risk for, you know, garment workers working under slave conditions. I mean, it's anything from being forced to stay longer at work when you'd actually rather be leaving. It's requiring that you hit a quota to be paid. And that's, you know, here in the U.S. or abroad. In a a lot of cases, it's actually people are, are held to live in the place where they work. So really extreme conditions for some of the garment workers that responsible purchasing practices would really create much needed change in the industry. And it's brands kind of owning up to this legacy of exploitation that's been just a a constant in what the industry was built on for hundreds of years. So, you know, where do we go from here? Because we're talking about what the industry has been focused on thus far, which in terms of the broader conversation and particularly what the average customer is aware of. It's more about human rights in supply chains at the factory level. I'm not sure that your average person walking into an H&M has any awareness of what responsible purchasing practices even are, that it's even a thing. What do you both think radical transparency could really look like in the industry? It's truly this shifting lens of viewing your suppliers as partners in a relationship, not a transaction. And I think responsible purchasing practices are just part of that foundation for how we should be moving forward in the industry because it brings everyone to the table with the exact same amount of power. And it was interesting to see the management systems that proliferated where, you know, workers were given a line that they could report abuses out of the factory, like labor voices and another one that was really big, bought up by another audit firm. But that hasn't really created the change in the industry that was um, what everyone thought it was going to be. And I think it's really because we haven't addressed the root cause of how we're viewing the relationship. Factory owners are still kind of treated in that carrot stick mentality of, we've used the term comply or die before, the power dynamics are still that the brand, despite the fact that they have the margins and the relationship that they could make changes in their supply chain. I mean, I remember talking to a major New York brand recently, their sustainability manager, and she just said, you know, we don't have the margins though. And it's incredibly hard to believe that that's true, that your factories actually have better margins than you to address the the root problem of unequal power dynamics in your supply chain. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently in terms of this concept of accountability, I find it interesting that accountability has been applied to stakeholders in the system who have less power. And when I think of accountability, I think of those with more power being the ones who actually need to be held to account. And that's not what we're seeing in the industry. And and obviously it's because those with power get to dictate the terms. So I just wonder, you know, what will be the mechanisms we can use to hold the stakeholders who have more power to account? Because the reality is that they can prescribe and comply the changes that they want to see in the industry because they have power. And how do those of us who have less power in the system hold them accountable to the ways in which they're contributing, as we mentioned, to the 
to the dysfunctions and not just from a voluntary perspective. Like, can we see radical transparency being driven all the way through a value chain to not just look at what's happening in a brand supply chain, but for the average person to have an awareness and an understanding of what are the decision-making factors that an, an internal team in a brand uses to make decisions about their supply chain and how are those internal decisions impacting human rights abuses or, you know, people, workers being able to thrive within the brand supply chain. Like that's something that I would love to see, to see our technology spread to within a brand so that we have transparency to all of those internal decisions that are impacting the system. Yeah, it's really, it's been a very successful model for a brand to start talking about radical transparency in their supply chain when it gets to be used in this kind of savior storytelling way on the underdeveloped world. And for brands to actually apply that same radical transparency internally is definitely where we're going. Totally. And and even in that, the narrative of the story, and we've talked about this a lot, like who has control over the, the narrative. I think it was Nikki Sanchez in the first episode of The Root who used the term underdeveloped, overexploited, which I really loved because it really captures the reasons why the countries we talk about as underdeveloped are underdeveloped. And it's because they're overexploited. It's not because they just somehow couldn't develop to the level that that the developed quote unquote world was able to. It's because the developed world overexploited those countries. And I think you could say the same about the internal and you know US-based operations as well. There's just been a wholesale exploitation of workers within brands too. You know, it's really time that brands start pulling the thread of transparency into their internal company culture here in the U.S. as well. An employee at Adidas actually back in June after George Floyd's murder started protesting on site at Adidas for months because she was really unhappy with how racism had been handled at her work. And she's just set such an example for the industry that you really can make a change happen when your company's not being transparent with their operations here. And, you know, I mean, sadly, Adidas has said so many things about their supply chain and they've also set a gold standard in the industry for sustainability. So to be called out for something like that is it's really needs to be taken just as seriously as everyone's supply chain is abroad. Yeah, I think that is the most important point of this discussion is that transparency is not just about checking a box. It's not about controlling your supply chain. The most important part of it is really under or being transparent about what happens internally in your company. But it's also about how you plan and make decisions within your organization. And I think being transparent about those things is really a means to kind of reveal your your motivations. Why are you looking into transparency or wanting to be transparent in your supply chain? Is it to really improve the the livelihoods and the lives of people that work in your supply chain? Or is it as a means to just check that box? Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. To join the conversation, Follow us on Instagram at WeArePopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com, 
Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge and mixed by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.